Chapter 12 of The Mute Singer by Anna Cora Madewit Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 12 Renunciation. The slumberous eyes of Madame de la Tour did not long remain closed to what was passing around her. One of her beloved lap-dogs chanced to be ailing. Her niece casually mentioned that Ursule professed to be acquainted with a mode of treatment which would be beneficial to the suffering favorite. The next time that Madame de la Tour heard that Honorine was receiving her humble guest, anxiety for the health of the overfed pet caused her to seek Ursule in Honorine's boudoir. The apartment was empty, but... Through the open doors of the conservatory she beheld Sylvie walking with Marquis de Saint-Amand. Honorine, at some distance, assisted by Ursule, appeared to be securing the cage of a mockingbird to the bough from which it had accidentally been loosened. Madame de la Tour became a looker-on unnoticed. She was struck with the deportment of her nephew towards Sylvie. She marked with what lover-like emphasis he seemed to be talking to her, how tenderly he bent over, until his breath must have fanned her cheek, with what an impassioned gaze his eyes were riveted upon her animated countenance, with what responsive earnestness Sylvie replied to him, sometimes by rapid and significant gestures, sometimes by tracing a few lines upon her ivory tablets. Could it be possible that the nobleman had so far forgotten himself as to be captivated by this Bolivian maiden? To what disgraceful consequences might not such an attachment lead? This ill weed must be nipped in the bud before it could expand into baleful blossoms. A mode of effecting this blighting process, which was only too simple, suggested itself to the wily schemer. She would have preferred some more difficult and torturous path by which her talents for maneuvering might have been called into pleasant play. Without having been seen, she noiselessly retired, and on reaching her own apartment rang for a servant and ordered him to seek Mademoiselle Valette in the conservatory and say that his mistress desired a few moments' conversation with her. Ursule, though not a little taken aback by this unprecedented summons, had no alternative but to obey. When she was ushered into the presence of Madame de la Tour, the latter received her with languid hauteur. In her composition there was a large dash of pride and pomposity, which was glossed over by her habitual apathy until she was roused to action. Motioning Ursule to be seated, she addressed her curtly. Mademoiselle Valette, I expect the object of this interview to be kept secret, especially from my niece. Have I your word that this shall be? Ursule timidly replied in the affirmative. Madame de la Tour went on as abruptly as before. It has always been difficult task to guide and control Mademoiselle de Saint-Amar. 
inappropriate as was her association within a young person of Mademoiselle Sylvie's condition in life, I allowed my niece to receive her without anticipating any unpleasant results. I have reason to believe that this unfortunate girl has been so much flattered and elated by a few unmeaning attentions bestowed upon her, chiefly through pity, by the Marquis de Saint-Amand, that it is necessary, for her own good, to withdraw her from further exposure to the danger of misinterpreting my nephew's courtesy. Little cared Madame de la Tour for Sylvie's well-being, but she took her stand upon this amiable ground, because it was beneath her dignity even to hint that her nephew could have been inspired with an undue interest in the lowly maiden. Her soul was struck dumb. It had never occurred to her that Sylvie could regard one so much above her in any light that was incompatible with his rank and her humility. Now a thousand trivial incidents, which had made but little impression at the moment, rushed back into her mind, and forced the instantaneous conviction that Madame de la Tour had not arrived at an erroneous conclusion. That lady proceeded a little more graciously, for she was flattered by the evident effect produced by her harangue. To a person of your apparent good sense, it is hardly needful for me to suggest the course which propriety demands. Your mode of action I do not dictate. I shall only look to the result which must be a cessation of this too familiar and unmeet course. Am I perfectly comprehended? Perfectly, madame, Ursul forced herself to reply. Should Mademoiselle de Saint-Amand inquire why I sent for you, you are to understand that the object of this interview is solely to consult you about my poor little dog, who is suffering terribly. I am distressed to death about him. My niece informed me that you expressed an opinion the other day concerning the proper treatment of the dear little martyr. Oblige me with your advice on the subject." Madame de la Tour took an asthmatic favourite into her arms with such tender a touch as though it were a sick infant. Ursule endeavoured to collect her thoughts and communicated a prescription which had proved very salutary to canine health. Madame de la Tour was quite melted by the anticipated restoration of her curly darling. The less important subject, previously disposed of, appeared to have faded from her thoughts. Ursule, after giving all the medical information in her power, gladly withdrew. With slow steps she returned to Honorine's boudoir. The most sorrowful episode of her own life was rising up before her and saddening her anew. In her youth she had given her affections to one who had been forced by family considerations to offer his hand elsewhere the very remembrance of that cruel wrenching away of the heart which she had endured was filled with intense anguish, and she shrank from beholding Sylvie undergoing a similar soul convulsion. "'What did my aunt want?' inquired Honorine, the instant Ursule re-entered. Sylvie and the Marquis were still wandering among the flowers. They had not noticed Ursule's brief absence." 
She desired to learn what opinion I expressed to you concerning the treatment of her lapdog, was the evasive answer. Oh, those blessed lapdogs, replied the unsuspecting Honorine. If you preserve the life of one of them, Madame de la Tour will think that you deserve a pension as a public benefactor. When Ursule and Sylvie returned home that day, the former said with unusual gravity as they reached her door, Come in, Sylvie. I want to talk to you about, about, about something of importance. Sylvie complied with a face so bright, so full of hope, so free of care, that Ursule felt like a pitying executioner who does not dare to withhold the blow ordered by a superior power. She laid aside her out-of-door wrappings and sat down. Sylvie threw off her black velvet bonnet, brought a little bench to her soul's feet, and seated herself, leaning with both arms upon her friend's lap. Her soul found it very difficult to commence a task from which there was no escape. Sylvie was too much engrossed by her own sweet thoughts to notice her troubled look. At last, Ursul said, Sylvie, you are quite well now, are you not? Sylvie nodded a glad assent. We must wait patiently for the restoration of your voice. Sylvie assented again. She was waiting patiently, hopefully, happily. You enjoy your visits to Mademoiselle Honorine very much, do you not? Sylvie's expressive look replied that no words could depict how much. The Marquis talks to you, reads to you, walks with you in that lovely conservatory, and, oh, that is very delightful, resumed Ursul. Sylvie drew a long breath and her face was suffused with a blush of unmistakable affirmation. Sylvie, my darling, forgive me. It grieves me to the heart to pain you, to force you to reflect, but to what good can this lead? What result can you expect? At those soul-searching questions, the hot blood fled from Sylvie's cheeks and lips, as though it rushed in a lava torrent to protect her heart from some freezing clutch. With the bound of a fawn suddenly roused from serene slumbers by a death era, she sprang to her feet. The all-engrossing present had been so enchanting that she had never once fixed her eyes upon the future. Trembling from head to foot, she stood one moment wildly glancing at Ursul, whose hand had unerringly loosed the shaft by which she was transfixed, then dropped down again into her place, and buried her white visage in the compassionate torturer's lap. How much more rapid than light even is thought, which it resembles. Pages would be needed to chronicle the lightning-light reflections which, during the brief silence that ensued, flashed through Sylvie's mind, and illumined recesses for her own heart into which she had never before gazed. Finding that she did not look up, Ursul proceeded, Brave spirits such as yours should have the courage to examine consequences of their own actions. Do not think that I judge you harshly, because I have blown away with rude breath 
the elusive mist floating before your eyes. The Marquis de saint Amar is the first gentleman with whom you have ever been acquainted, independent of the superiority of his intellect and the person over those of most men, it is but natural that you should feel attracted towards him, that you should be grateful for his attention, that you should enjoy his society, that, that alas, yes, it is but too natural that you should give him your heart. Sylvie's head sank deeper into the folds of her soul's dress. There was another, longer pause. That you do or will love him if you continue to be subjected to the spell of his presence, there is little room to doubt, added Ursule unshrinkingly. She had applied the knife to the disease and must cut deep to reach its core. Perhaps he does or may love you, though that is far less certain. But what good could spring from his love or yours? Sylvie's head swayed from side to side with a despairing motion, which answered, None, none, none. Your stations in life are widely removed. There is such an almost impassable gulf between you that he can never contemplate making you his wife. At these words, Sylvie grew as still as though pulse and breath had ceased. Then to entertain a passion for you would simply be an insult, would it not? Still no movement. Sylvie, all I have to add is concentrated in one question. Before that parting, which must come, grows harder for you, perhaps for him, for he is a man of genuine and honorable feeling, should you not save yourself and him, future misery, by putting an end to this ill-sorted intercourse. Sylvie no longer trembled. Her frame was almost rigid in its calmness. Slowly she raised her ashy face, and, looking with steady, unmoistened eyes into Ursule's bowed assent, her countenance appeared to have grown suddenly older. Lines of sorrow and self-renunciation had been ploughed into the young brow in a few brief minutes. She took the tablets from her girdle and wrote, Best of friends, you are right. You have made me reflect. You have opened my eyes. I will go there no more. I know you suffer, returned her soul soothingly. I have lived through anguish as poignant in years long past. Sylvie rose with a composure which was full of true dignity and self-respect, embraced her soul gratefully, lifted the velvet bonnet from the bed, and passed with firm steps from the room. When she opened the door of her mother's apartment, she saw Madame de la Roche bending over her work and heard her moaning to herself as she plied her needle. "'So you have come at last,' she murmured fretfully. I have been expecting you for an hour. You stay later and later every time you go, but nobody seems to care how lonely I am. I will keep you company after today. I will help you work tomorrow, wrote Sylvie, and handed the tablets to her mother. What is the matter, then? What has happened? 
How oddly you look. There is not a drop of blood in your face. Have your grand friends become tired of you? I thought they would. That's the way with them all. It's only what I foresaw. Sylvie wrote in answer. They are as kind as ever, but my holiday as an invalid has been long enough. I am quite well now, and tomorrow I will go back to my sewing until my voice comes back to me. And that will never be, never, 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 was the consolatory response. Then I must sew on to the end, Sylvie wrote quietly in reply. She left the tablets in her mother's hand and went into her own little chamber. The strong-hearted maiden did not waver in her resolution. The next day she sewed diligently by her mother's side, in spite of the constant complaining of the latter, who was no better satisfied than before. When Maitre Bougeot found his pupil thus employed, he accosted her with, "'What are you doing here, doubling up your chest in that fashion? What have you to do with needle and thread?' She was prepared for this ebullition, and, with an air of assumed cheerfulness, wrote, I have to earn my livelihood if I can do so, my master. I have been idle too long. Now it is time for my holiday to end. It is time for your folly to end, replied the irritated musician. Who put this nonsense into your head? Do not be angry with me, wrote Sylvie, but until my voice returns I must use my needle, and if it should never return, I shall have nothing but my needle to depend upon. Maitre Bougeot was ready to burst out into such a rage as Sylvie had not beheld since her misfortune, but her distressed and pleading look checked him, and he only answered, We shall have to talk to Mademoiselle Honorine about this tomorrow. I have written to tell Mademoiselle de Saint-Mar my determination, wrote Sylvie, I have thanked her for all her kindness and bade her adieu. Our paths henceforth lie apart. Where is the note? inquired Bougeot authoritatively. It is gone. I sent it by post, wrote Sylvie. Miserable girl, groaned her master. You want to ruin yourself? You will make Mademoiselle Honorine think of you merely as a poor sewing girl instead of the brilliant woman of genius whom she might be proud to take by the hand and her brother too sylvie quailed at these last words Bougeot saw how she shrank and paused a new light dawned upon him what has occurred between you and the marquis he asked abruptly nothing wrote sylvie you have had no misunderstanding he has not offended you he has not said or done anything to grieve you. She pointed to the nothing before traced on her tablets as still her answer. When did you come to your present novel resolution? Yesterday, she wrote. And you mean to keep it? My dear master, I do. After Bougeau read these words, she closed the tablets and replaced them in her girdle, with an air which announced there was nothing more to be said. Sylvie's inflexibility of purpose and determined composure baffled Bourgeois. He could not discover any solution of her enigmatical conduct. While he was pondering, she went to the table, 
took up his violin, and placed it upon his knees. The action was a petition. Bourgeot, somewhat softened, said, as he turned to his instrument, "'When I have reflected, we will talk further about the unreasonable course you have chosen to pursue.' Reflection, however, supplied him with no argument that shook Sylvie's constancy. She steadfastly pursued the path she had marked out for herself without one sign of faltering. At times her countenance betrayed that she was passing through a great struggle and gained a great victory, but the combat that tested increased rather than exhausted her mental strength. Honorine wrote, entreating that she would give some fuller and more comprehensible explanation of her conduct, and begging that she would continue her visits Sylvie replied that it was best their intercourse should end. Better, at least for herself, she added. In vain, Boujou fumed and scolded and argued. Sylvie was immovable. Strange to say, her melancholy mother gradually grew less despondent. She had said Sylvie's intimacy with those far above her would come to a sudden termination, and it had done so. Her spirits were always brightened by these verifications of her evil predictions. Sylvie's father had not recovered from the depression incident upon his last disappointment, and was seldom at home. He had returned to the notary, once more solicited employment, and gone to work with unwanted industry. Sylvie's days now appeared to move in a fixed and monotonous circle, but their dull round was less oppressive than might have been imagined. In renouncing self, she gained a serenity which is allied to cheerfulness. Consoling thoughts were infused into her mind through many a heavenly influx, and spoke from lips that even casually addressed her, and found voice in the very pages of books she opened. A few lines from one volume in particular haunted yet helped her. These were those words of Thomas Akempis, If thou seekest this or that, and would be here or there to enjoy thine own will and pleasure, thou shalt never be quiet or free from care. And in everything somewhat will be wanting, and in every place there will be some that will cross thee. Every day she became more and more convinced of the truth of those words of wisdom, she must set aside self, must renounce her own will and pleasure to find peace. She must wake from rosy dreams to soften stony realities with the mossy coverings of patience. She must leave the flowery paths of self-gratification and tread with bleeding feet to the flinty ways of duty, confident that by that road alone she could reach the goal of happiness. End of chapter 12.